So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you would open to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Gospel of Matthew, uh, beginning in chapter 5. Last week, we uh, did what I, I described as going to look to the left half of the Beatitudes. This week, we're going to consider the right half of the Beatitudes, kind of everything after the comma. And I wanted to approach this introductory teaching from Matthew this way because I think it helps us tease out a reality about human nature. And that is this, every action, everything that we do, always runs on motivation. Everything, whether it's conscious or not, everything that you do asks and answers the why question. For example, the work that you do each day is motivated by a certain answer to why. Perhaps your answer is, I do it to make money. Or perhaps the answer is, I do it to faithfully do my job so that I can move up to the next rung of responsibility and make more money. Or maybe a more wholesome answer. I do it because I want to use my gifts to make the world a better place or to love and serve people. My point is simply this, that lurking behind every action that we do is a certain answer to the why question. And if the motive dips, if the because isn't compelling enough, our actions always wane. If there's not enough money to justify the work, we start shopping resumes. If there's no chance of taking a step forward, perhaps we consider another company where advancement is perhaps more tangible. Or if it's menial work that doesn't seem to make a difference in the world, it's pretty hard to get out of bed at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. We are all, always, asking the why question. And though we might not consciously ask the question, everything that we do moves on a certain why. Setting an alarm, eating one food and not another, working a little overtime, or breaking off a little bit early. Everything moves on why. And we are always asking and answering the why statement when it comes to our spiritual lives as well. You might think, or I might like to think, that we'd have this certain intrinsic motivation to obey God, to do what he says, to live and worship full obedience, but this is simply not the case. And rather than demeaning that, we might see that as a central way that God has fashioned humans in his image. He created us, and he knows how the human engine is meant to run, and he knows that we work off of certain motivations. This is the, the gas that drives the engine of the human life. And for that reason, built into Matthew's first summary statement of Jesus' teaching is central core motivations that are meant to drive the outcome of the Christian life. If you remember, let's review these Beatitudes beginning in verse 2. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 2. Matthew crafts his gospel around these teaching units. If you're new to the Bible and you have a red-letter version, you just kind of skim Chapters 5, 6, and 7, you notice it's all red letters, all teaching of Jesus, 
positioned as the Sermon on the Mount, though probably a collection of teachings that Jesus gave at, uh, at this mountainside, not one consistent unit, but arranged by Matthew to make a point of the central teaching of Jesus in regards to what kingdom living is meant to look like. And as a divine act, we see Jesus going up to the mountain where throughout the Old Testament, people would go to meet with God, but this time doesn't, Jesus doesn't go up to meet with God, but he goes up on the mountain to speak as God. And he gives them instruction for this is, this is what kingdom living is meant to be. Beginning in verse 2, he opened his mouth and he teaches them, speaking as God, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now it's easy, uh, even if this is your first time coming to the text, to see the, the point that Matthew is trying to emphasize and Jesus' words because of the repetition of this introductory word, blessed. And we made the point last week that blessed is a word that has a, a host of different overtones, themes, that are hovering behind the use of this language. It certainly is a communication from God, Jesus, that these people, the people who are meek, the people who are mourned, the people who hunger and thirst, are recipients of divine blessing. That if they are in Christ, if they are a part of the kingdom, even those who might not seem to have blessing have received God's good blessing. He has given that divinely. They're also blessed because they're empowered by the Spirit. We, we talked last week about the fact that none of these characteristics or virtues are things that we can muster up in our own strength. So they're blessed because with the Spirit's power, you can be meek. You don't have to live in pride. You can endure persecution and suffering with the Spirit's power because He is there and present with you. But we also made the point that as you turn the gem of the word blessing, there's one particular way to, to see this language that, that's helpful for us, and it is, it is in line with the wisdom sayings throughout the scriptures, that by virtue of the Spirit's power, this is actually the path to your flourishing. This is God's best life now. If you want to experience the fullness of what God has for you this side of heaven, this is the, the best way to live, to be meek to not be prideful and set yourself up for destruction, but live with humility, to step into persecution and suffering, because that is the, the path to flourishing. Now, the question then that hovers behind, if this, is a, if this is the best way for me to live my life, why? Because what? 
What would motivate me to live these type of countercultural virtues? Is it simply because Jesus says, be meek? Or is there something else at work? I would suggest to you that the way these beatitudes are packaged gives us the something else that's at work. If you notice throughout this, there's a, there's a parallel in Matthew's construction. There's a blessed statement followed by a virtue and then a conclusion that's typically in most of our English translations begins with the word for. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall be comforted. Now as English readers, perhaps that word for isn't strong enough. It doesn't conjure to mind uh, enough of a connection here. Maybe reading the word as because is more helpful. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you mourn because you will be comforted. I want us to consider these becauses together this morning and see them, view them as motivation to lean into God's path for flourishing. Beginning in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit because, or for, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, unfortunately, as we read this, this may be the most cryptic of the because statements, to know exactly what's Jesus getting at with this statement. We know, however, that it's important because it bookends these Beatitudes. If you look down in verses 11 and 12, 10, 11, and 12, you notice that the persecution for righteousness' sake is linked with the kingdom of heaven, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know that these are not like happenstance suggestions of Jesus, but rather clear promises because not only are they mentioned here, but they're mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. For example, Paul, in writing to his protege Timothy, pastoring the church in Ephesus, says this in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, notice it's in the context of persecution and suffering again here, he says, if we endure, we will, the future promises, we will reign with him. You notice the language here of kingdom and reigning denotes something that the people throughout the Old Testament longed for, a king like David or Solomon who would usher in God's peace, prosperity, who would rule and reign in righteousness. And God says through Christ that in this coming day, we, specifically here, all those who have faith in Christ, will reign with him as the rightful king. He who sits at the right hand of the Father, one day those who are in Christ will rule and reign with him in that manner. What does that mean? Well, the best evidence we have of what that means is actually all the way back in the garden. When God creates Adam and Eve and places them in the garden, he could have set up his kingdom to say, I'm going to do everything, and you're just going to be this mechanical being that does the things that I program you out to do. But that's not what he does. He says, I'm going to set you up as sub-rulers. You're going to execute dominion over the world that I've created. You're going to rule and reign. You're going to cultivate or develop this garden that I've put you in. You're going to have responsibility over the animal kingdom. You're going to give them names. 
he gives Adam a certain kingly dominion or responsibility. And though Adam blew it, we have their foreshadowing of the coming restoration that will be for all of God's people. They will, with Jesus, reign, have dominion, rule over a good world that is now free from sin and destruction. Why is this good news for those who are poor in spirit? I don't think it's happenstance that Jesus links the promise, the because, with the virtue. You you who are poor in spirit, feel blessed and lean into poverty of spirit because yours is going to be the kingdom of heaven. Why is this good news? Because poor in spirit, poor people don't rule kingdoms. Poor people are broken. They don't have anything to offer. They're poor. And Jesus can say, embrace your poverty of spirit here. Lean into poverty of spirit because one day you're going to be a king. You don't have to rule and reign in this life because one day your rule and reign will happen. And it will happen in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So embrace it. Lean into it. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Consider this future promise from John's revelation that ends our Bible. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Why is this good news for those who mourn? Why is this good news for those who lean into the mourning of others and bear those burdens? Because if you've mourned, you know that every drying of the tears here is only temporary. It doesn't last. Yeah, time may appease it a bit, and your friends may comfort you in the midst of the pain, but you never dry tears completely here on this earth. It's only one phone call, one car accident, one diagnosis away from tears welling up in your eyes once more. What is the motive by which we can embrace mourning? It is the fact that one day we will be comforted by a great high priest who knows our temptation and knows our pain and yet passed through this earthly portal perfectly. He can dry our tears in a way that no one on this earth ever will. He will bind up our wounds, wipe away our tears, and take away all our pain. As C.S. Lewis masterfully says, one day everything sad is going to come untrue. And this hope can allow us to embrace temporary mourning, knowing that forever we will experience comfort. Thirdly, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Paul uses this language throughout his writing. Here's one in his famous run-on sentence that starts Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You're reading that in Ephesians 1, and you're like, what's it? Right? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of my inheritance 
until I get it. I don't know what it is. Well, Jesus gives us some sense of what the it is. It is the earth. It is everything. It is the, the world and all that is in it. In Romans 4, 13, Paul applies this promise when he says the promise wasn't to Abraham or his descendants that he would be the heir of the world. And it wasn't through the law, but through righteousness by faith. So everyone who has righteousness by faith inherits the world. Now, how does that happen? Well, because in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. So if the earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it, then the heirs of all that the Lord has, they inherit the earth and everything that is in it. Everything. A new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, all will be yours to enjoy. Think of how this blows out of the water the typical illusion of retirement that so many of us have, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn, I'm going to save, and at the end, man, I, I just want like 20 acres and a high, old ranch with a wraparound porch, and I can sit out and rock and watch the sun go down. Like, that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm banking on. That's it. Jesus says, you're banking on way too little. Your inheritance in this life pales in, you're going to get the earth. Everything is going to be yours. You're going to rule and reign over a new creation in which righteousness dwells. You're not going to get 20 acres in a rocking chair. You're going to get it all. And, and I think this is linked to this inheritance, you're not just going to get it all, not going to get all the earth, but you're going to get it with glorified new bodies. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that there's a resurrection from the dead, a sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown to dishonor, it's raised to glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised to power. It's sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. Not only are you going to get all things, this new heavens and new earth, but you're going to get it with bodies that you can actually enjoy it with. I mean, it's a rocking chair, but their health has failed to such point they can't even enjoy the 20 acres that they now live on sewn up for grandchildren to hand down he said no 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 you're going to get everything and you're going to get it with perfectly renewed bodies that you can enjoy it with you're going to enjoy this new heavens and new earth the inheritance that is yours why is this good news for the meek because they've had to give up something on this earth haven't they They've had to give up something here. Their retirement portfolio may not be what it would otherwise be. What sufficient motive can cause you to relinquish an inheritance on this earth? It's only an inheritance outside of this earth, beyond this life. That sufficient motive to compel me to say, I'll willingly lay aside treasure on this earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. I can give up that inheritance because I'm going to get one that far exceeds that. In fact, Jesus is going to warn later in the sermon that you better be really, really, really careful if you start to lean into this worldly treasure because you're going to get all that you're going to get here. You've already received it in full. It's the people that can willingly delay gratification until another life and another inheritance that they're going to step into. 
the beauty and the joy of what God has created. So be meek, be humble, because you're getting ready to inherit it at all. He continues, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Again, John's prophecy in the book of Revelation in chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You're reading that passage as someone who's somewhat familiar with the scripture. You're like, dude, that sounds really familiar. Sounds just like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? I mean, I'm reading Genesis 1 and 2 with my kids, and I always get to the part in the middle of chapter 2 where he starts to list off river names. And I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce this. We're just going to go first letter, all right? It's weird. It's like, all right, we've got this pristine garden framed by these rivers. In the middle of it is a tree, all these trees that you're going to enjoy except this one that's off limits. Fast forward to the new heavens and new earth, and it's exactly what we see. We see a river this time coming out from the throne of God and food for our enjoyment and for our treasure. He says, I'm going to remake the garden. This time I'm going to do it in a way that sin cannot wreck or ravish my good creation, and I'm going to give you everything that you need to satisfy you. The food and water that you need is going to provide all that you need. This is self-evidently true, why this is good news for those who hunger and thirst. Sadly, on this earth, even the hunger and thirst for righteousness always comes up short. You never quench that thirst. Sadly, there's sin that so easily entangles that will continue to plague us until our death. Even on our best days when we're thriving and celebrating the goodness and worshiping of God, we feel like there's, I'm just coming up short. I'm not experiencing it in its fullness. So what is the hope for those that feel this nagging sense of the sin that so easily entangles and this longing to worship God as he deserves, but a sense that we never do it perfectly? It is the reality that there is coming a day when you will be satisfied. When the thirst will be quenched, the hunger will be appeased, and you will know in full. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Here's the way the writer of Hebrews makes this promise. I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What gives me the gumption, the courage, the confidence to lean into the virtue of being merciful to others? I don't have to hold them up guilty for their sins against me. I can show them mercy because one day God will show me mercy and he knows me far more fully than I know that other person. I can trust that there is coming a day when I will be perfectly and finally declared not guilty. 1 John 3 verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. I can be merciful on this earth because I know that there is coming a day when I will be perfectly glorified, when the one who could avenge my sin will overlook it because of the finished work of Christ. He will declare me not guilty. For they, verse, verse 8 they will see God. They're pure in heart. They can feel blessed. They can lean into being pure because there is coming a day when they will see God. Jesus 
beautiful words in John chapter 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, know that I'm going to come again. That, and don't miss the link here, that where I am, there you will be also. The beauty of heaven isn't merely the inheritance of the earth, it isn't glorified, but it's the fact that we're in the presence of God. He's what makes heaven great. You're going to get God. When he, when Christ, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you're going to also appear with him in glory. Or Revelation 21, a verse I've pointed to already, Revelation 21, 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is what the Old Testament people of God long for. This is why we have a tabernacle and a temple because God dwelt among sinful people and now in the new heavens and new earth, God dwells. Every, every, his presence pervades. And you get God. Why is this good news for the pure in heart? Because they've shielded their eyes from evil in this world. They've relinquished giving in to the shiny, glittery things that are so captivating. They fought for purity by the Spirit's power because they are going to step into a far greater treasure than any shiny, glittery thing on this earth could ever satisfy. They've been willing to say no to their fleshly desires because they're going to get God. Not only are they going to get God, but in verse 9, they're going to be called sons of God. Paul writes in Romans 8, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Consider what Christ inherited. Consider where Christ is currently. Consider the fact that we who are sons and daughters of God are brothers and sisters with Christ and rightful heirs to all that he receives. We are sons and daughters of God, which means that on this earth, I can be a peacemaker, I can fight to demonstrate mercy, I can get taken advantage of, which is what peacemakers will always get taken advantage of, because my identity doesn't need to be declared now. One day, God, who was the final arbiter of my identity, will say, you are a son of the living God. One day, it will be seen clearly who I am and who you are if you are in Christ, so we don't have to avenge rights or wrongs on this earth. We can wait in faith that the final identity declarer will get it right. Then lastly, Blessed are you when you're persecuted because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, because your reward is great in heaven. Now I would be reaching from a human pulpit to even attempt to summarize what the great reward is stored up in heaven. God has told us all we need sufficient for righteousness on this earth. And what we've already seen is sufficient reward in heaven, isn't it? We're going to get the earth we're going to get glorified bodies. We're going to get God. And on top of that all, he's storing up a reward for us in heaven. 
that we don't understand. He hasn't spelled out for us in detail, but we know it awaits. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which to the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me also, but to all who have loved his appearing. You've got a crown awaiting you, a reward from the just judge who will give it to us in a future day that he has determined. Why is this good news for those who are persecuted? Because in the end, God's going to declare them to be winners. He will be the one that says, you're a part of the great cloud of witnesses that receive the crown that's name is written in the book, life. You receive this reward. I can willingly lean into having reward taken away from me in this life, motivated by the reward that I will receive in the next life. And friends, this is good news, not merely because there's a corresponding because statement with each virtue, but rather because all of these because statements apply to everyone in this room who is in Christ Jesus, who has repented of your sins and trusted Christ in faith. You don't merely get the corresponding state of affairs. You get it all. This is Oprah, you get a car, okay? Everyone who is in Christ gets everything that's on this because list. Not because of anything that you've done, but merely because of God's grace in Christ. This is the inheritance that is ours, Unfortunately, several of the books that I've read in preparing for the Beatitudes sermon, they don't even discuss the right side of the comma. They, they don't even mention it. It's there in the passage, and they do something like this. They quote the Beatitude. They challenge the reader to do what Jesus says to do to be blessed. And then they move on. Jesus says, be meek. Be meek. Here's a cute illustration of being meek. Jesus says, mourn, mourn. Here's a good illustration of mourning. They don't even mention it. I'm convinced that Jesus and Matthew's packaging of this links these together because Jesus knows, understands, that the human machine leaning into applying these virtues is only going to happen as there is a sufficient and compelling because that empowers, that motivates it, that fuels the obedience that he calls for in this passage. He says, do this. Why? I got a really big because for you. I got some really good promises that are awaiting you. Lean into this. This is the hope that are, that's for us who are in Christ. We are motivated. We lean into obedience. And in so doing, we are both pushed by Jesus' finished righteousness, his finished work on the cross, what has been declared to us in Christ, the Spirit's power that is given us, and we are also pulled into the future by the future promises that he's declared and that he will always keep. I mean, if you want to summarize the Bible into it, like, it is a book that declares the faithfulness of God. He never breaks a promise. So if he says these things are true, then we can be pulled into the future based on the surety of these promises coming to pass. 
You, you may be like me. I get a little bit squeamish when people start talking about claiming God's promises. I'm going to claim the promises of God in prayer. I get squeamish because that language is often used discussing claiming God's promises for the present. I'm convinced that the biblical theme of claiming God's promise has, has far more to do for what awaits us in the new heavens and new earth than it does for this life. Yes, I claim God's promises of my present identity, but a lot of this, friends, is delayed gratification. It's something we're not very good at. It's claiming God's promises that there are weights for me in an inheritance. There are weights for me a God who's going to dwell with me. There are weights for me a crown of righteousness. And if I grow in treasuring, celebrating, claiming those promises, I'm far more compelled to worship full obedience in the present. So, do you celebrate God's promises? Do you know them? Do the future promises of heaven sound to you a bit hollow? This morning, be reminded of the surety of the promises of God that are compelling enough to drive 40, 60, 80 years of humble, delayed gratification, knowing God's going to keep his promises in the life to come. And friends, if you are here this morning and you don't have the ability to claim those promises, might you this morning repent of your faith and trust in Christ. Might you not end this life banking on some ultimate scale or hope that things are going to work out in the end. May you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a son and daughter of the living God and heir of Christ, rightful inheriting all that comes to those who are his in faith. Would you join me as we pray and turn our attention to those future promises this morning? God, we bow before you, thanking you that you are aware of how we are built. You created us, and in designing us, you know that we, we move on motivation. And for that reason, you have not left us without future promises. You, you have clearly communicated to us all that we need to know, and there's much that we don't know, but you've told us all that we need to know about this glorious inheritance that awaits those who are in Christ. Father, forgive us for fixating on temporal things, hyper-focusing on the things of this earth that are so easily taken from us. God, would you wait, raise our awareness of the glorious promises that await those of us who are in Christ Jesus? Would that theme play in our heads consistently each day? And when we're tempted to take what is ours in this life, God, would you, by your Spirit's power, give us the grace to delay gratification? to lean into meekness and poverty and hunger and persecution in this life, trusting that you're going to right all wrongs, you're going to give the inheritance, you're going to give us the crown, you're going to dwell with us at a future day 
we ask with the writers of the scriptures that you would come and come quickly. That we would experience that now. But as we wait, we pray that you would help us love your promises, treasure them, think of them often. And would you produce, motivate worshipful obedience as we do. We ask that for the sake and fame of Jesus Christ. Amen.